0: Dark Arenas shows us that the world can be a dark place, and until recently, I thought I knew the depths of that darkness, especially in the place I call home. But it turns out I was wrong. I've spent over a year investigating the death of 27-year-old Douglas Wagg Jr., hoping to learn exactly how he died and why his body was found across a strip of railroad tracks so far from his home. But what I ended up finding was so much more. In this season of my show, CounterClock, I uncover a string of crimes and mysterious deaths that unveil darkness and corruption right in my home state. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of.
0: The content of Dark Arenas includes topics and subject matter that may not be suitable for all audiences. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of AudioChuck or its employees. Information discussed by the host and interviewees includes content related to crimes against children, abuse, acts of terrorism, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. It's commercials like this that started to make art fun for millions of children growing up.
1: It's the new Play-Doh, Dr. Drill and Fill. First the drilling must begin, then put the Play-Doh filling in. Now his Play-Doh teeth are done, Dr. Drill and
0: Fill is fun, you can make it with Play-Doh. OK, so maybe molding colorful blobs of clay was the extent of art for some of us. But maybe you took it a step further and learned from the all-time great who millions of people owe a lot of credit to for teaching us to love painting.
1: Hello, I'm Bob Ross, and I'd like to welcome you to the 29th Joy of Painting series. Let's start with a little two-inch brush and a touch of the alizarin crimson. And we just load a little bit right into the bristles.
0: A lot of what makes a great artist is possessing a combination of natural talent, interest, and the ability to turn mundane things into beautiful creations. Famous artists have said they can see artwork in their mind before they ever pick up a brush or begin chiseling away at a hunk of stone. Vincent van Gogh is famously quoted as saying, I dream my painting and I paint my dream. And that's definitely inspiring. But what if your art wasn't about dreams or landscapes? Or in the words of Bob Ross, fuzzy friendly forests? What if it was of the dead, the wanted, or the missing, and it was really only meant for one thing, solving crimes? In this episode of Dark Arenas, I'm sitting down with a forensic artist who specializes in giving identity to the dead, missing, and on the run.
2: have, like, your basic clay tools that you would go and buy at, like, a, a craft store. The art
0: supplies on Samantha Molnar's desk inside the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigations
2: headquarters in London, Ohio, are unimpressive. So I actually use marbles for their eyeballs, and I just draw the iris and the pupil on with uh, markers. Aside from her basic supplies, everything
0: else in her office, though, kind of makes you take a step back and definitely left a lasting mark in my memory.
2: He was my first one, and he had an underbite, which you can kind of see too in his identification.
0: There are half a dozen busts of clay heads mounted to boards sitting on her shelves. Each face looks so real, it's like a person is actually gazing at me, silently. All around this level of the building, poster boards and paper flyers cling to the walls and sides of cubicles. I make a mental note that all these eyeballs hanging around just add to the faces staring back at me. It's kind of overwhelming. Every one of the pictures is either someone who's gone missing, needs to be identified, or was identified, but has never seen their killer held responsible. The walls are just lines of lost people, literally. It's Samantha's job to give these individuals closure, starting with establishing their identity. In other words, giving them a
2: face. So if they find skeletal remains somewhere in the state of Ohio, then they would contact me and I can help them do a clay reconstruction of what that person might've looked like. I can also do post-mortem images, which is somebody maybe who isn't completely skeletal. They can send me those photos of that person. I can do a post-mortem image, which is just a more tasteful image of the person rather than them being like on a morgue, in a morgue, and then that way it's a little less traumatizing to the family to see this image that's a little bit cleaned up, and then we can do an identification that way. When Samantha first got her job
0: as a criminal intelligence analyst for the Ohio Attorney General's Office, she knew she wanted to work in law enforcement, but she didn't necessarily think the state agency would foster her artistic skills.
2: I actually have always done art. Everybody in my family is super artistic. My dad does chainsaw carvings, my mom was super crafty. And so I always painted and things like that. I never sculpted before this job. As a kid, I watched way too many crime shows. I was obsessed with bones. I wanted to be, you know, Angela Montenegro. That that was my like goal in life. Getting to do that at like 23, 24 years old was awesome like that was my end game goal and so to be able to come here and have the opportunity was really cool. When the BCI
0: hired her the agency knew she had a natural gift for art but at the time didn't have a way to utilize her skills. Not long after sending her to a forensic artist training conference what Samantha was naturally good at became apparent.
2: Sculpting. Facial reconstruction and different forensic art things were something that the agency couldn't offer. And so we found a training, she sent me to the training, and it was amazing. Um, my very first like test case I got to do, I got to see it on the last day, what this person actually looked like, and it was really cool how close it came out, and it just made me really believe in this process.
0: Clay facial reconstructions have become Samantha's passion. Reconstructions are facial renderings of a murder victim or even suspect that are literally carved into a chunk of clay. The sculptures are usually photographed and often put on display to help law enforcement get the word out to the public that they need help identifying that person.
2: Samantha comes into the picture with this process on day one. I do my clay reconstructions. I build my own stands, I go to the hardware store, I buy my stuff, I build my own stands. I've been able to build some really awesome partnerships with local hospitals and with The Ohio State University. So whenever I get a skull, I will take it to the hospital. They will do a CT scan of the skull and then that will generate a a 3D picture of that skull, and then I take it to Ohio State, they convert it from the CT scan to something that can be uh, digitally printed, and they will just literally print it on a 3D printer, then I can operate off of that plastic replica rather than the actual skull, which back in the old times, they used to operate right directly on the skull, but then you are unable to preserve evidence. You know, if there's further DNA testing that needs to be done, all of that is underneath a bunch of clay. She can only start sculpting after she learns specific information from investigators. If there's a lot of information found, maybe this person hasn't completely decomposed and I can see, oh, he had facial hair or hairs recovered in general. Sometimes people are dumped and they're completely nude, so I don't have any clothing to go upon. So I have no idea how thin or heavy they were in their life. I also heavily rely on anthropologists to examine the remains and give me their best guess on, you know, race, ethnicity, age, um, sex, all of that. Those
0: kinds of details matter a lot because the faces of so many of the people she's
2: trying to recreate literally have been erased. Most of the cases I've worked on are homicide victims. And so they've had everything taken from them, even their name. And so to be able to work on these and to try to capture at least one feature correctly, so that way maybe their family member can recognize them, is, it's so important. Just in general, just to give them another shot to be identified. I would say for facial reconstruction especially, one of the most difficult parts of it is when you don't have all of the remains, especially if somebody is completely skeletonized. You're going off of clues, but not everything in your skeletal structure is going to re- reflect your soft tissue features. What I have found is a lot of times when skeletal remains are located, they've been there for at least a year, and if they've been out in the elements, there's animal activity, and not all of the bones are recovered. So one of the things that is often not recovered is the jawbone or the mandible. And so without that bone, it makes recreating a face very difficult. Difficult, but not impossible.
0: If anthropologists can at least determine the race and gender of an unknown set of remains, even if there's pieces of the skull that are missing, Samantha can, with a certain degree of accuracy, make a clay bust that should reflect true-life
2: characteristics about that person's face. One thing I definitely notice is on most Caucasian skulls, we have a much more defined nasal ridge. So our nose bone is more defined where if it's like an African American skull, it's softer. Same thing with like an Asian skull is it's their nose bone is much softer. Male skulls often have stronger jaws and larger skulls in general. It's not by much. So if, you, if you're not comparing it to other skulls, you don't really see it. It should be said though, that a forensic
0: artist's estimates only go so far. And that's because people are not always just one ethnicity. That's the beauty of the world we live in. Societies are a melting pot of ethnicities. Pinpointing precise details in a clay reconstruction becomes very challenging when you consider so many variables could be at play.
2: You can definitely see the difference between like male and female. And a lot of it's like brow ridge, like males usually have a more like a stronger brow ridge but i also worked this female that i was looking at her skull and i was like kind of shocked it was a female and even the anthropologist said the same thing because she had a really strong jawbone and they all said the same exact thing that they were all really shocked by that but when she was identified i mean she did she had a strong jawbone so the biggest misconception is just that people expect a facial reconstruction to look exactly like the person i think they have to consider. Just how much information is there. Like I said, I, I, people expect it to be like a photograph, but it, we can't get too specific in a reconstruction because then it's going to pull, you know, somebody's like, "Ah, oh, well, my sister's nose doesn't look like that. So I'm not going to report her as a potential match where if we are a little less specific, it hopefully will draw on some more tips and leads.
0: One question that's always come up in my mind is how people's weight gain and loss can affect their features and the likelihood that someone would be able to recognize them. Samantha says with clay reconstructions, she tries to use clues like their height and the size of any clothing found on the victim to help her estimate how heavy their face should look or not. For example, She says that if someone's skeleton indicates they're very short, but maybe an article of clothing around them is size large or extra large, then she may make their reconstruction representative of them being heavier set, if there are other pieces of evidence that would support that.
2: To start somewhere, though, Samantha begins every case the same way. I start my clay reconstruction, I do the muscle structure, and then I put these average tissue depth markers that have been, you know, determined by the FBI, and I put those in and I start to build the face, and even then, like, it starts to take shape, but then it's really just trying to capture, like, okay, you know, the crinkles in your eyes, and... Making sure that the nose doesn't just look like a glob of clay, but it really does look like somebody's nose if they do have a broken nose, trying to capture that the best that I can. And I think like the more that I've done reconstructions, the better I get at them, because I have learned especially through identifications, what things I maybe did correctly, what things I could have done better. I just try, I think every time to make things look as a little bit more realistic. But also, try to keep in mind those things that I first examined when I looked at the skull and really making sure that those are coming through. um not putting distracting hair on the reconstruction if I don't know what it looks like. Just really taking into account like the time period they were found, their age, you know, male or female, and then really just trying to focus on bringing out like if they have a strong jawbone, if they have just different features, and trying to, like I said, You don't know everything that the soft tissue does, but if you can capture like one or two features correctly, it might spark somebody's memory when they look at that photo.
0: And that's really the whole point, using art she's made to make a
2: difference facial reconstruction and forensic art is kind of like a sexy topic so people are interested in it people are going to read that story where they may not read just like oh you know human remains are found and may not like really think about what the descriptors are in the paragraph that you know is written it's not just words on a page saying skeletal remains were found but it's an image that people can kind of connect to do you
0: feel like if somebody doesn't have a face to them that no one in the public really cares.
2: Yeah, I think it's really easy to skip over a news story that's just like, oh, human remains found. Like, is that interesting? Yes. But it gives you nothing to look at. Like, what does the word Caucasian, Hispanic, what does that really mean? I mean, you see people every day of different ethnicities and stuff, but you don't really really think about their features and what they look like. So you could give a description and that's not gonna mean much to you, but if you have a face to look at, it's a little bit more real you know it's not just human remains that are found just like animal bones that are found it's a human person that you know was murdered or maybe took their own life or something happened to them and then i think if you have an actual face to look at it makes it more real and i think it brings out more like compassion or empathy or people want to actually help when they have a person to look at that was a victim
0: what are those moments like for you where you step back and you go someone has to know this person
2: there's one i worked on he's still not solved But he was found in an abandoned building. More than likely, he was homeless. Most of his teeth were missing and he had never had dental work, but he also had several, it looked like he had, his nose had been fractured multiple times. So that was one that like, when I did the reconstruction based upon the information that I had, like had a very distinct skull. We had his jawbone, we had, you know, the top of the skull, we had everything. So that one, has bummed me out that he hasn't been solved yet but like I said these are the coldest of the cold cases his family may have never reported him missing if he did live like a homeless lifestyle somebody may have never reported him missing but that's one that like really stuck with me that I was just like looking at him like man and then I go through missing persons reports after I create this you know reconstruction and I start looking for people that look similar and you know of course after we push these out people will call in tips as well and you really look at some of these faces and you're like, wow, how is it not this person? And then it sucks sometimes, like you get DNA back and it's not, like they fit everything. And it's like, how many people are still missing from this time period that look just like this guy and don't match, like it kind of blows your mind. In cases like that,
0: where it seems like no matter how many leads feel promising but dead end, not all hope is lost, at least not anymore. And that's because of two words, genetic genealogy do you want to set your child up for success ixl learning is an online learning program for kids covering math language arts science and social studies ixl is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way now my little guy is still young but i can already tell that integrating fun ways to learn is going to be a game changer for him Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the US. There's one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can even access IXL on the go through the app or your phone or tablet. No more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. IXL has built-in explanation videos. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Dark Arena's listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash arenas. Visit IXL.com slash arenas to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When it comes to learning a new language, which is something that's a passion of mine because, hey, I'm in the field of communication. I can't help but love language. But what I really want most is a software or program that I can trust. I want to make sure that what I'm paying for, I'm actually going to be able to use in the real world. And that's why I love Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone has been trusted for 30 years with millions of users and there are 25 languages offered. 25. I'm currently brushing up on my French because I learned it pretty well a couple of years ago but I've gotten away from it. And one of my favorite things about the app is that true accent feature where you get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words and when it comes to a language like French I obviously want to make sure I'm doing the accent right. So whether you're traveling abroad or trying to break down a communication barrier with a new friend, Rosetta Stone is something you should look into because you don't want to put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Arena's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com arenas. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash
2: arenas. Sean Great has already been sentenced to death in the murders of two Ashland County women. Great says he wants to talk to officials in a third county about a murder case there. We had a serial killer in Ashland, Ohio. A woman had been kidnapped by him and she he fell asleep she stole his phone she called 911 police rescued her and when they got to the house they find found two other women deceased in the house he ended up confessing to those homicides and he confessed to two other women that he had murdered as well as a fifth woman that was uh, jane doe in marion county
0: great confessed to killing a woman more than 10 years ago
2: her body found in 2007 but great says he didn't know her name she was found nude, there was no clothing around her, but she was skeletal, but she had like really great teeth and she had, they estimated her between like 15 and like 22 years old. I had just started doing reconstructions at the time and they asked if I would do a reconstruction on her. So I did, you know, they showed him and he said it looked like her. He said that she sold magazines, but he couldn't really remember her name. He thought it was like Dana or Diana, but he was really like working with police to try to identify her. He saw her one day and he was mad and he said, oh, I want to buy some magazines for you, but I forgot my wallet at home. So she jumped in the car with him and then he murdered her. Well, fast forward to like, I think it was 2016 is when he finally starts coming forth about all this, like, yes, I killed her. So we start working on this case. You know, we do the reconstruction. We get all these tips in and we still can't identify her. So then I start going through every single... BMV record of a Dana or Diana that hadn't renewed her driver's license since about the time that he said that he had killed her. And so I can't find her. He's like, I think she had an Ohio ID. I remember holding on to her ID for a while, which is spooky, but I couldn't find any in Ohio.
0: It was in that moment that Samantha remembered something she'd learned a long time ago in training, that just like paint and clay have lots of different base elements, that tell you exactly what it's made of, so
2: too does the human body. One of the things we had done at my training was called isotope testing. And so every single set of remains that we were working on at this training down in Florida, we did isotope testing, the anthropologists did that. And they were able to tell you kind of like what geographic area you came from based upon your bones. And we know the things that you ate, the water that you drank, it all exists in different like weights or isotopes throughout the world. And so that's what we did for her. We sent her remains down to the University of South Florida. They did the isotope testing and the results came back that she was from Southern United States, somewhere between Texas and Florida and one of the states in between. Then I start searching all the missing persons from down there and we start collecting DNA and still nobody is matching. And so we were just so frustrated, then genealogy came out and we sent it to the DNA Doe Project and they were able to come up with a name. That name was Dana Lowry,
0: a young mother of two from Louisiana whose family had never reported her missing back
2: in 2007. She was in her you know, lower 20s. She had two daughters. Both of her parents were deceased before she went missing, so she was with a boyfriend but I think things were rocky and she decided to go and sell magazines and she did and she sold to the wrong person and when she didn't come home he thought maybe she just you know found a new boyfriend found a new life and never reported her missing and her daughters grew up thinking that their mom abandoned her but she was a victim to a serial killer I worked with Marion County we were able to get um, the DNA standards from his daughters down in Louisiana which is where she was from and make the match.
0: When authorities compared Dana's official Louisiana driver's license photo to the reconstruction Samantha had made prior to the genetic genealogy testing, the images were very, very similar. Dana's killer, Sean Great, claimed to have murdered several women throughout Ohio. Multiple victims is a common claim that serial killers make that law enforcement can never fully accept without definitive proof.
2: The past tells us that people that are serial killers love to claim crimes even that aren't their own because it gives them more fame to their name. And so we're in this situation where we're, you know, everything else he's told us is the truth, but is he claiming this Jane Doe as well? And how truthful is he being? And then her name ended up being Dana Lowry. So that was amazing. Like he did remember her first name. She didn't have an Ohio ID, but... Everything else that he had said was spot on. She sold magazines and yeah, it was crazy. The Dana Lowry case taught Samantha that her
0: work as a forensic artist is that much more successful when coupled with the advancements in DNA technology. She's been able to uncover an entire new pool of victims or missing people through the use of genetic genealogy research. This new pool makes up a lot of those faces I saw lining the walls of the BCI.
2: There are thousands in the United States and you know, 9-11 could have happened over and over and over and it still wouldn't equal the amount of unidentified remains that we have in the United States. Thousands of people that are unidentified, thousands of people that have lost their name, that have fallen victim to criminals who can't even be prosecuted because we don't know who they are, who their victims are. Forensic art used to be the last ditch effort to kind of ID these people. Now we have genealogy, which is the the last step essentially, until maybe even new technology comes out. But what I have been finding is I was doing these reconstructions and then genealogy came out and genealogy was finding these people that were never reported missing, that were estranged from their families. And we were able to make matches that never would have been matched before because so many people were never reported. Sometimes it's discouraging because it's just like, man, but when you do solve one of those like unsolvable cases, it's amazing because it's a chance and it's hope and it's hopefully hope for other law enforcement agencies if for some reason
0: genetic genealogy testing can't be done in a case, Samantha's next tool to take a case forward rests with the click of her computer mouse. The work she does with digital art can be the tipping point for a case that's been patiently waiting for new traction for years. So so this case right here, this is a really big
2: case in yes. the true crime space. So what's what's with this one? So Brian Schaefer has been missing for quite some time. What happened to Brian Schaefer? He was an OSU student who disappeared back in two thousand and six,
0: never to be seen or heard from again.
2: He had gone, you know, out with he was a medical student at Ohio State. He had gone out with some friends to a bar called the Ugly Tuna. They have surveillance footage of him walking into the bar or at least you know, being outside of the bar and then never returning home. And he's never been found. The case of Brian Schaefer vanishing from
0: Ohio State has been a mystery that dozens of true crime TV shows, podcasts, and articles have covered. It's a mind-boggling unsolved missing persons case that, for the sake of this show, I won't go into all of my rabbit hole theories about. We could be here for hours. But Crime Junkie Podcast did a deep dive on Brian Schaefer a few years back, and I highly recommend listening to that episode. Samantha has spent hours working on a digital age progression of what Brian would look like now, 15 years after he was last seen on surveillance footage in OSU's bar district. She showed me a picture of Brian from 2006, as well as the most recent age progression image of him she made in Photoshop. And I've got to say, seeing those two images side by side was pretty amazing. There's links to the photos on our website, darkarenas.com, so definitely go take a look. Basically, with Brian and all other age progressions Samantha does for missing persons cases, she studies a subject's family and life history as much as possible in order to accurately predict how they'll age.
2: The postmortem images and age progressions is all in Photoshop. So it's not uh, like a Snapchat filter. You know, I don't just put somebody's face in there and then the, the filter does it. Everybody ages a little differently. And we're likely to age like our parents or our aunts and uncles or our siblings. So when somebody's been missing for 20 years and they have a sibling that's maybe five years older than them, I can use those photos to see how did their sibling age, how did their parents age. And then I'm taking into account those things when I am aging this person. Some people are going to get bags under their eyes. Some people won't. Genetics does definitely play a big part into that. So the more reference photos I have from the family, you know, if they looked like their dad or an aunt or something like that, that definitely helps me to be more accurate. But definitely you have to take into account their lifestyle. So are they using drugs for 20 years? They're going to age a little bit more quickly. So even if they are 50 years old is what they would be now, they might look closer to 60 because they've lived this kind of a lifestyle.
0: As you might have guessed, Someone's ethnicity or race is an important factor when it comes to age progressing them. For example, Samantha has found after studying bone structures that Caucasians tend to age faster, while individuals of African-American or Asian-American descent age more slowly and retain youthful features longer. Pretty regularly, law enforcement will ask Samantha to update an age progression of a person that's still missing. Police do this to help weed out influxes of tips and information that come in from all
2: over the country. And the Brian Schaefer case is no exception. With these missing persons, a lot of people will say, oh, I saw this homeless person in Texas that looks just like Brian Schaefer." And so one of the reasons they had requested an age progression is to see if we do age progress him, are we able to maybe, did he just decide to, you know, leave and create a new life? And is he living somewhere else? And so that's part of the reason why they, you know, want to do the age progression.
0: Samantha doesn't just do age progressions on the Brian Schafer's of the world, though. She digitally ages wanted fugitives, too.
1: Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis, which could lead to psoriatic arthritis. But Cosentix treats both. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of.
2: I worked an escape fugitive his name's Gordon Lambert and he he escaped in uh, 1987 and we age progressed him and it was based upon, you know, his family members photos. He has several brothers and so I just kind of used their photos to age progress him and it was so interesting. I you know, I worked with the marshals on this. So after we pushed out this age progression image, I sat down with one of the marshals and we were started going through Facebook post and we thought we found him and we were so excited because he looked just like my uh, age progression photo and you know we're doing all this work to try to figure out who this person was and we ended up finding out that he had another brother that we just didn't know about and he looked just like this brother so that was like super interesting. Did you ever find Gordon Lambert? We did not find him yet, no. So Gordon Lambert escaped prison in 1987 Yes, and he's still out there. And he's still out there.
0: And there's an image that you've created that should look like him a lot because you looked at his family members and said this is my most accurate you know creation of what i think he would look like in 2021 right samantha's age progression of gordon lambert is on our website what's wild to me is that the digital rendering she made of him seems so spot on it's altered just enough from his original mugshot from orient correctional institution to look like a man that's aged 34 years I hope one day the right person will see the age progression image and report him if he's still alive. According to the U.S. Marshals, Gordon is wanted for aggravated robbery and assault for shooting at two police officers who were trying to arrest him back in the 1980s. And now with him being on the run for decades, he's obviously wanted for escaping prison. Samantha says when it comes to age progressions, she rarely creates multiple versions of a person, even in dough cases that are cold. Multiple versions meaning she could put facial hair on or off somebody or have that person in various stages of weight gain or weight loss. Unfortunately, because her caseload is so heavy, she can't create multiple or even duplicates of the same person. This is a standard practice for most forensic sketch artists, unless law enforcement requires them to do so otherwise. Samantha just tries her best to make the person appear as they were last reported, or as their bone structure indicates they would look. Another tactful and downright tricky thing Samantha does with forensic art is age regression, making an older person look way younger than they actually are. This approach is often used to catch child predators and criminals committing a variety of online crimes against children.
2: We can age regress the people that work on the task force and then use those photos to maybe say, hey, I'm 13 years old, and lure somebody that's, you know, trying to take advantage of a 13-year-old that doesn't really exist, but is just a law enforcement officer a 13-year-old girl is what we're aiming for, and we're starting with a 30-year-old be- investigator. We can put her hair in pigtails, and I can take her picture, and then I'm slowly going to take away age lines, you know? I'm going to shrink down her, her features a little bit, you know, because we're all, like, a little bit softer, and um, as you get older, your nasal ridge gets more defined, your, you know, just different features, like, our eyes kind of sink in a little bit, you know? You're going to get crow's feet when you smile and things like that. So those are all things I'm gonna wanna take away. And then also, you know, just trying to put her in a background that looks like maybe a playground or something like that, rather than a cubicle. But that's just like another cool tool that we can use to go after those people that are targeting children. When you think about it making a 30 or 40 year old woman or
0: man look like a child to hopefully lure a predator is kind of dark stuff i mean i'm on board with it but i'm not sure i could be the one staring at photoshop for hours trying to make an adult look like an appealing young child for a predator to come after yeah no i'm good but samantha takes that part of the job and all other aspects very seriously even the darkest of the dark parts like sculpting the face of a deceased person or murder victim who was so destroyed they barely have any identifying features left.
2: The hardest part of the job is the nature of these cases. I've worked, you know, a few serial killer cases now. I've worked, you know, people that were bound and thrown in a well. I've worked women that have been murdered. And just, like, the worst thing, like, things that make up your nightmares, like, that's the reality of the cases that I'm working. And, you know, people think it's, like, kind of exciting, like, oh, cool, you're working on a skull, like, that's so neat. But the reality is, is, like, that's a real human, like, who really went through something really terrible. Is it neat to be able to do this job? Is it neat to be able to use my art to help identify, you know, victims? For sure. But it's also very dark in the fact that I'm really working with real human remains. I'm taking a real human skull to the hospital to get a CT scan. You know, it's, it's cool to tell the story and the job is fascinating and, you know, all of that. But it's also really sad, like the reality of these cases. You know, when I've had identifications, I've literally like broken down and cried because I just I'm excited that they're that they're identified. But I'm so sad about what happened to this person. Excited that their family now knows But their family also is faced with what really happened.
0: I would think that would be the hardest part, too. Which feels strange, because having closure and answers to someone's identity should feel rewarding. But I get it. There's a serious
2: depression that comes when you have to process the horror of how a victim's life ended. How do you tell a family, like, sorry, the only thing we have to return to you is their skull. We don't have anything else. So it's just... That is, I would say, the darker side of it is just the reality of what has happened to these people.
0: I thought about that as I walked the face-filled halls of the BCI on our way out. The nagging question lingered. What happened to all of these people? Their endings may have come when they died or disappeared, but the endings of their stories are far from over. Their stories are like a bunch of micro-dot paintings that are slowly being drawn... It may take a long time to see their full picture, but one day, a forensic artist, law enforcement, and genetic genealogy labs are going to reveal the complete canvas of their cases. I just hope that happens sooner rather than later. This episode of Dark Arenas was written and produced by Delia D'Ambra, with writing assistance from executive producer Ashley Flowers. You can find pictures and source material for this episode on our website, darkarenas.com. Dark Arenas is an Audio Chuck original show. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?
1: Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentics. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of.